0: Well, welcome back to another episode of Theology Doesn't Suck, where hopefully uh, theology Theology not suck uh, with you today. As always, is hopefully your 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 Beloved co-host of this podcast, Josh. Wait, hold on a minute. And with me, as always, <laughs> is probably the least favorite co-host, Marty yeah. Frederick.
1: I don't know if that's true, Josh. I mean, <laughs> I, I I think they they like me just as much, if not probably more, uh, because I cheer for a superior hockey team. Uh, All right, that's you. not
0: a fair argument.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's the way I make logic work. So, I mean it. You know, I mean I watched hockey a couple nights ago and I watched a 7-2 victory that the Boston Bruins had over the St. Louis uh, Blues. That was a pretty intense game. Um, it was
0: I was pretty bummed. I absolutely like I really don't like the Bruins at all. I, I can't
1: I, I can't <laughs> imagine what it would be like to be that goalie, you know, and on the Blues and just know, I mean, this is like the, this is your shining moment. This is your chance to like take things and like make it big. I mean, to to show everyone what you got. And goal after goal after goal <laughs> just goes beyond you.
0: I, I, I that's gotta stink. Oh, for sure. But I think too he should. I mean, so Jordan Biddington he should be proud of himself. He's uh, he's younger than I am. So I'm just about 25 years old. I think he's sitting somewhere around 21 or 22, and uh, he came onto a team that was the worst team in the NHL. You know, during the regular season, uh, they fired their coach, got a new coach called Biddington up and they've been killing it now they're in the Stanley Cup final so they have a lot to be proud of
1: except for that game they were except for that game right (laughs) (laughs) well you know the other thing too is you know so what you're saying is the Blackhawks just recently fired their coach and they brought some people up so what you're saying is that's a recipe for Stanley Cup victory is what you're
0: saying maybe it has been done before (laughs) I mean (laughs) but it might not always work out
1: The Blackhawks have won quite a few recently, so I think we can give it up to a few others. But at the same time, man, there's nothing like a Chicago victory.
0: Dude, the Blackhawks have also been around since forever. So, you know, my Washington Capitals, I don't know, they haven't been around as long. So I think time will tell who the true superior team is.
1: Sometimes children don't wind up
0: winning things so (laughs) (laughs) we can make the parallel if you want but (laughs) right on right on all right man well i guess we'll uh we have a a pretty cool guest with us today and uh we'll go ahead and jump in because we have a a conversation i'm super excited about um with us today is dr thomas j ord who has asked us to refer to him as tom so tom how are you doing today
2: doing well doing well i should say that uh people probably like Marty more because he's got more facial hair than you do, Josh. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's completely fair.
0: (laughs) That's completely fair. (laughs) And it's nice too. It's really it is nice. I can only I can only hope and pray for a beard as nice as Marty's. This is the best I got right here. But Josh blessed me with the gift of facial hair.
1: I am ten years older than Josh too, so I've been growing this beard for a very long time. So I told him if he starts now. He might be able to have it by the time he's 34. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's sort of like they say when you like put like $10 in the bank when you're like a five-year-old and you let it sit and then yeah. you could be a millionaire when you're 60 or whatever. Maybe, Josh, you could uh, apply that principle to your own facial hair growth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll work on it. I'll work on it. Uh, well, anyway, so uh, just to, to go ahead and, and jump in here, uh, Tom, for our listeners who uh, maybe have never heard of you before – uh, who are you, and what do you do, kind of what's your, what's your background, those kind of things?
2: Yeah, I'm a theologian, a philosopher, a scholar of multidisciplinary studies, which basically means I'm interested in just about anything and write for uh, a wide variety of disciplines. I'm also an ordained elder, I have pastoral experience, I'm a husband, a father, um, and I write a lot of books and do a lot of speaking.
0: Mm. Nice, awesome. What uh, what kind of, what's your church background? Uh, where did you pastor at?
2: I'm an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, which is a small, uh, fairly conservative, uh, Wesleyan denomination, about uh, three million strong around the world. About you know, I think six hundred fifty thousand in the U.S., so not very big.
0: Mm. Sweet, yeah. I actually, I currently work at a, a UMC church here in uh, West Palm Beach. Um, I grew up in a UMC church, uh, but I am leaving that church. We're, we're moving, my wife and I are moving back up north, and I accepted a, a position as a high school slash young adult pastor at a non-denominational church in Maryland. So I have, I, some, yeah, well. I have some, yeah, have some, thank you, thank you, I have some experience with the, the Wesleyan tradition. Hmm. And uh, just real quick too, before we jump in, we have a question that we ask all of our guests here at Theology Doesn't Suck. And it's a question that you have to answer even if you feel like you don't have an answer. Okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge question, super important. What is your favorite hockey team? Oh, my goodness. This,
2: is gonna, <laughs> this interview is starting off badly because I'm not a real <laughs> hockey fan. So,
0: That's uh, fair. <laughs> we, know, well, we can help you. What's nearby?
2: Uh, you know, Edmonton Oilers may be, well, they're so far north. They're probably not the closest. L.A., the Kings? Uh, okay. San Jose, uh,
0: the Sharks probably closer because I'm in Idaho. Maybe the okay. Sharks. I accept the Sharks as a good answer.
1: Well, you know, Seattle's getting a team soon too. So they
0: are. I did not know that. Oh, Once Seattle you know?
1: gets a team, you could just pull for them.
0: Yeah. You Yeah. Know, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, Seattle's getting an expansion team, not, not this up-and-coming NHL season, but the following year. You know, they've already been approved. They started construction um, – I think Seattle's looking to bring in some other major league sport as well. I'm not quite sure what it is, but they're working on it. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Sweet. So uh, today uh, we're not going to be talking about hockey, as fun as that would be. I love ice hockey. It's my favorite sport. Uh, Marty's a pretty huge (laughs) fan as well. Uh, But today we specifically wanted to talk to you um, about a book that you wrote a few years ago, or at least I read it a few years ago. Uh, called The Uncontrolling Love of God. And so before we jump in uh, to your book and and some of the ideas that that stem from it, uh, I have a question um, about something called process theology. Uh, Would it be right to, would you actually, maybe a better way to phrase this is, would you consider yourself a process theologian?
2: I typically call myself an open and relational theologian, and that's kind of an umbrella term under which process theology would be one particular form. I do okay. that because that, the phrase process theology means so many different things. And um, if I said I'm a process theologian, in the minds of some of your listeners, they would think uh, that meant X, and other people might think it meant Y, and etc. So um, <laughs> I think sure. of myself as an open relational theologian, which uh, basically means I think God is in relationship with us such Mm -hmm. that we and the rest of the world really have an effect on God. And I think that God experiences time somewhat like we do. And that means the future is truly open for God,
0: just like it's open for us. Okay. Awesome. Interesting. And so um, within that, that realm of the process theology bit, if you had to describe what you meant by... Process theology under that umbrella of open relational theology, uh, what would that? What would you say that means uh, for you?
2: Process theology typically affirms about five things. One, that the world we live in is interrelated, including you and me and um, bunnies and elephants and rocks <laughs> and corks, and God is interrelated. Secondly, that the world is fundamentally comprised of Experiences, not objects or, or substances. That's kind of a philosophical uh, argument there. Third, that God is intimately related with the world and has always been so. So in other words, it denies that there was ever a time that God existed all alone. Um, all, lots of interesting aspects to that. Uh, sure. Fourth, that uh, no individual can... Entirely control another individual, and that includes God. God cannot entirely control you, me, or even the quarks. And number five, let's see, what am I missing? There was a fifth one that's now escaped me. <laughs> so we'll, we'll go for four today. <laughs> nice. Yeah, no,
0: yeah, that's perfect. And something, uh, something interesting that you said there, and it's actually something that my interest has been piqued in uh, most recently. I mean, I think it comes from uh, what I would (laughs) like to call like a more uh, fully realized understanding of the incarnation, Uh, like Richard Rohr, for example, uh, talks a lot about this in his latest book, The Universal Christ, Um, that not that God, not pantheism, that God is everything, but panentheism that, you know, God can be found within everything. And so that's kind of um, something that would fit nicely into your realm of thought, right?
2: Yes, I'm a panentheist. In fact, I just came back from a month-long lecture tour in Europe, and many of my lectures were on panentheism, what it means, what it doesn't mean, my particular form of it. But
0: uh, yeah, panentheism is often linked to process thought. Okay, awesome. And so that, is it fair for me then, because I'm still kind of uh, new to looking into this, uh, is it fair to link, um, like, an uh, understanding of the Incarnation, what it means that God became flesh, uh, to that that understanding of panentheism? Those two kind of uh, go pretty hand in hand. Is that fair to say? Yes, I like to think so. Although you could be, you could affirm the Incarnation and reject
2: panentheism. And sure. So you could be a panentheist and not... Uh, like the particular Christian form of the incarnation in Jesus Christ, so they're they're not ne- necessarily intertwined, but they both fit very nicely together.
0: Okay, yeah, kind of like this this idea. Um, I'm trying to think how it was phrased. Uh, almost that like creation itself. Uh, goodness, I think Richard Rohr says it like that. Creation itself is almost like our first Bible. Like that's an incarn. It's very. It's an incarnational yes. act. Yes. So that's kind of along the same line of thinking? Definitely so, yeah. Um, and I don't think well,
2: yeah, the idea that incarnation is not just in Jesus, didn't just happen 2,000 years ago for the first time, but God has always been present throughout all creation, both today and in the past, and creation gives witness to God's presence. It doesn't, mm. creation isn't God, you know, straight straight away, but it gives witness to God because it
0: affects God, and God affects it. Awesome. Fantastic. I think that's just so beautiful. I'm <laughs> kind of dipping my toe into that, that line of thought, and it's blowing my mind. <laughs> Excellent.
2: Yeah, it's really good stuff. I, I find it super helpful from not only the
0: way I do my scholarship, but the way I just get along in everyday life. Uh, fan- yeah, it's it's it almost it seems to me like some people... Uh, Talk about how that somehow diminishes God, but to me, it—it's it, opening up to God is way bigger than I ever thought He was, and mm-hmm. so it just—it's getting me excited. <laughs> yeah, and it's it, always. Brother.
1: It's always been interesting to me, um, whenever you talk about describing something on earth, uh, we use like things of nature to describe those things. So we talk about thunder and we say like, oh, God's footsteps are like thunder, you know, and we have to use nature. It's the only thing we have that we can use to describe God. And so, I mean, that's that's a really great uh, relationship, I think, between that.
2: Yeah. And it's totally biblical. I mean, there's so much in the Bible that's used to talk about God's presence God's action um, actually one of the things I didn't say earlier on is that I'm also a nature photographer
0: and oh, I, wonderful.
2: I do lectures using my photography to talk about God and, and of course there's so many things you can say about uh, the way the world is and how that might in some way reflect God or do a poor job of reflecting God if we think God is let's say a God of love and the evil in the world is not what God wants.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's just, it's so, it's so wonderful. And it just, you know, reminds me too of, of things that I've always, you know, heard and, and, you know, remember reading in scripture, like, you know, if you don't worship me, even the rocks will cry out. That Mm -hmm. seems to fit very nicely there. And, (laughs) you know, uh, falling asleep on a rock and then having the interaction with the angels and saying, yo, this is a gate to heaven. And, Uh, You know, anointing a rock—that seems kind of pagan, or it seems like it fits into exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's so beautiful. It's awesome. It's awesome. Great. Well, I kind of sorry chase us down a a slight rabbit hole there. Um, We want to talk about uh, your (laughs) your book, the uncontrolling uh, love of God. And so, um, kind of just to to kick things off. Uh, What was maybe like the problem you were trying to solve uh, by writing this book, if that's a, a good way to put it?
2: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I had two concerns in mind. First of all, a concern that maybe not a lot of people have thought about, and that's the question of the randomness and chance occurrences in the world in general, in our lives in particular. That is, you know, when you're playing... I don't know, some board game when you've got dice and you're rolling dice. Is that really a chance occurrence? Is it really random? Or is the rolling of the dice somehow predetermined or even uh, foreknown by God? Um, Many of the most important Christian theologians in history have rejected the idea that anything happens in the universe by chance. And yet today, probably in the last 100 years or so, that idea has become more and more common. I'd almost say it's the, the dominant view, that there's real accidents in the world. It's part of the way we think about what happens at the quantum level of reality. We talk about indeterminacy there. We talk about random genetic mutations in biology. We talk about winning the lottery and getting lucky. <laughs> um, most people, I think, when they use those phrases, don't think that God somehow determined or made things happen. And so if that's the case, then how do we talk about God's action in the world? If God is not determining everything, and therefore there are chance events at the smaller levels of reality and at the more everyday common levels, then uh, how do we talk about God's action, especially when some of those chance events end up causing harm in our lives? Why wouldn't God step in and stop those things? Why wouldn't God prevent accidents that really screw us up and cause us a lot of pain. Mm. The second idea is related to what I said there, and that's just the bigger problem of evil. Why Hmm. wouldn't a loving and powerful God prevent the genuine evils that happen in our lives? Uh, So one has to do more narrowly with chance. It plays into the questions of evil, but the larger one is the problem of evil.
0: Yeah, the, the problem of evil, that seems to be one that people continually uh, come back to over and over and over again. Um, you know, there's tons of theories out there <laughs> trying to, to solve this issue or trying to reconcile the issue. Um, you know, I have uh, a couple good, you know, uh, related family members that uh, specifically are not Christians because of the problem of evil, right. and I think that's an extremely common occurrence. Um, and so I think the work that you're doing is extremely helpful uh, especially well, for, you know, yeah, deep, deep thinking people that, that question those kind of things. Well, Paul um,
2: say, say that atheists um, claim the problem of evil is the number one reason why they can't believe in God. And it's actually mm. why I wrote a more recent book, a book called God Can't, to uh, really offer a constructive actual solution to that problem. And that solution I start getting into in the uncontrolling love of God, but then I develop it a little more in this uh, recent book
0: God Can't alright so what I'm doing now is I'm adding God Can't to my Amazon cart (laughs) (laughs) yeah I've, I've seen I've seen that pop up in like the suggested for you um but I have this problem where Amazon sends books to my house, and my wife's like, "How are all these books showing up?" <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so that might be one more one more of the uh, problematic books that Amazon sends me mysteriously. Um, <laughs> so um, ultimately, what it, it seems like what we're talking about has to do with uh, the sovereignty of God and what that means, and then also this like the idea of div- divine providence, right? Those are yes. are to two of the questions uh, that you're wrestling with here. And actually, uh, there are some uh, models of divine providence uh, that you kind of uh, challenge within your book. And so if you don't mind, if I can, I'm going to like throw those out at you. And if you can just, we can talk a little bit about uh, maybe why you deem them problematic. Yeah. All right. So the first one is that God causes and uh, purposes everything, including evil.
2: Yeah, this is a, what m- most people call the classic Calvinist approach, mm-hmm. um, and it de- not only denies there is chance in the world, it also denies there's free will, and it says that uh, God does everything, so there really is no evil from God's perspective, because every child that's tortured was tortured because God not just allowed it, God caused it to happen, and I simply can't believe a God who would cause children to be tortured is a loving God.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That um, That's definitely a, a big hang-up for me there as well, uh, are those kind of issues. Um, and often... Um, you know, because uh, actually the former, former co-host on this show, Andy, was a cal- or is a Calvinist, not was, is a Calvinist. And we would talk about this sometimes. And I know a lot of times people bring up like uh, the story of Job, you know, where Job kind of questions God. And God's like, well, I'm God. I can do what I want kind of thing. Um, what do you think about, you know, do you ever toss around those kind of responses? Or I'm sure you've gotten that before. definitely. Uh, Let me say something bold. The first bold thing I say in your podcast. Do it.
2: (laughs) The theology in Job sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like it. (laughs) So think about how the book begins. It's like God and the evil one are sitting around playing cards. And God starts bragging on this guy Job and says, have you checked out Job? I mean, this guy is flawless. He is so obedient, so righteous. And the evil one looks back at God across the table and says, Oh, come on. Job has just figured out the game. Job has figured out that if you live a good life, then you'll reap rewards. If you're righteous and obedient to God, your life will be abundant and good. So he's just figured out that, the, uh, that to you reap what you sow. But I tell you what, God... If you send some tragedy, or if you'll let me send some tragedy his way, he will turn his face from you. He will not be faithful. He'll become disobedient. And God's like, bring it on. I'll take that bet. (laughs) And so at the very beginning of this book, you've got the God of the universe playing around with people, taking bets. I think that theology sucks. Sure. I don't think God's in the business of sending or allowing torture, playing around with the evil one in some sort of cosmic game. And then, of course, things sort of play out. Job goes through a hor- horrible things. He remains righteous and true. Everybody tells him he shouldn't stay righteous to God. And then there's sort of an ending in which he gets some of it back. I say some of it because some people died and they didn't come back <laughs> from the dead. But, right. Um, I think the point of Job is this. Bad things do happen to good people. Mm. You don't always reap what you sow. And that's an important message that needs to be heard. But the idea that God plays games with the devil over people's livelihood, I think, is simply bad theology.
0: Yeah, I think that's super helpful. I actually had the exact point that you just made. One of my students uh, made that exact point when we were uh, discussing the, the book of Job um, and he, he threw that out and like the room just kind of got silent and secretly inside. I was like, yes, yes, perfect. Good job. Sharing <laughs> him on, uh, you know, encouraging him, you know, keep asking those kind of questions. That's great. Yeah. But that, that's an awesome point. I think too, that that's, uh, those kind of things are what uh, pushed me uh, that and a variety of other things to, to read uh, Job more um, allegorically, you know, try to pull out the, the message, Uh, Like you were just saying there, um, you know, within that realm. Yeah, I think whenever someone does what I just did
2: and said, you know what, there's some portions of the Bible that just get God wrong. That brings up the question of what we call biblical hermeneutics or biblical interpretation. And then the question has to be, okay, well, how are you justified in saying some portions of the Bible are wrong? Um, and that's a complicated question. My quick and easy answer is to point to what I call the overall drift of Scripture, which points toward a God of love and justice, and especially the revelation of God in Jesus Christ.
0: And mm-hmm. so given
2: the overall message, I'm able to look at some passages that don't fit the overall message and say, you know what, those just must be wrong.
1: Sure. Yeah, And, you know, as I as I read Job too, I, I see... Uh, a portion that's really the only portion of scripture that, that tries to, I guess, uh, for, for, it's it's hard for me to say this, but, (laughs) you know, as I think about Job, you know, and God's kind of placing him on this pedestal of he's so great and he's so grand, he doesn't do that with anybody else except for Jesus. And so, like, how do I deal with that problem of, like, I'm supposed to go through my life reading scripture and saying, you know only jesus jesus was the only perfect one he was the only one that could live a life without sin and we don't there's not much discussion about job and whether he was sinful or not sinful there's just a lot of discussion about job being you know so great and kind of working through this and being an honorable person and working through his life and sort of sort of like you were saying sort of this like works righteousness kind of idea like he was a yeah. great man he did a, a lot of great. He was a, just he, he. stuck to the to the plan. He was faithful. It's not until later that you see. Well, he was remaining faithful to the Lord in hardship, which that's a lesson we can all learn as well. Definitely, but at the same time,
2: definitely, yeah,
1: yeah. But then at the same time, you say, okay, but I thought Jesus was the only one that was going to be <laughs> perfect. And yeah, so, as yeah. you as you're talking about that and kind of seeing reading this reading scripture through the lens of
0: Christ. Uh, Job becomes a problem, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah good point. <laughs>
0: yeah, you and know, I, I think too, um, and the the name of this uh specific uh heresy is has escaped me currently. But what, what is it called when people uh separate uh you know Jesus as as fully divine and, and fully human? Do you know what I'm talking well,
2: there's, about? There's several different heresies There's Arianism, Nestorianism, yeah, all kinds
0: of okay. Them. So basically, we'll take that idea. And I think what happens sometimes, too, is people uh, do that with with the Bible. They forget Uh, that even though it is divinely inspired, you know, whatever that means, uh, that it is also very uh, human. And I think, you know, Pete Enzies uses a really great uh, phrase that uh, God likes to tell his story through his children. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes uh, we might over, you know, play the divine element of scripture and forget the human bit. And I think that might be something that you're pointing to as well, where sometimes, uh, as you put it, the theology in Job sucks. Yeah, Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah.
0: Sweet. That's wonderful. Awesome. All right. Well, let's, uh, we'll keep rolling here. Um, the, the next, uh, model of divine providence, God sometimes prevents, but also sometimes permits evil.
2: Yeah, this number two model is probably the model I find among most Christians in the churches I have attended. It's a Mm. God who gives freedom sometimes, but controls in other times. It's a a scenario in which sometimes we say it was chance, and other times we say God caused it to happen. Sometimes Mm. people who, in this particular view, will blame the devil or demons on things— other times they'll say, you know it's just your bad history or you know your uh, environment." One of the biggest problems with the second model of Providence is that there's a lot of what I call explanatory inconsistency. You hmm. never know who to credit and who to blame. but in terms of evil, uh, one of the major problems is that it said God says that God allows evil and People who believe in free will who don't want to say God causes evil will sometimes say, well, I'll give you the answer to why there's evil in the world. God allows us to use our freedom wrongly. But this is a real, I think, lousy way to think about God because I think we can all think of scenarios in which uh, not allowing evil that could be stopped or could be prevented is the loving thing to do. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example, all right? I have uh, three daughters, and I have a river that runs right behind my house. Suppose my daughters are out playing in the river, and I look out, and my oldest daughter has the head of my youngest daughter under the water, and she's trying to drown her. And suppose I'm close enough that I could intervene and rescue my youngest daughter, but I say to myself, you know what? I'm not causing this death. I'm just allowing it to happen. So, you know, you should consider me a loving father because I didn't do it. I could have prevented it, sure, but I didn't do it. No one would think I'm loving if I didn't intervene and prevent what could be preventable. And so that's the problem with the second model of providence.
0: Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't, um, I absolutely agree with you and I, I personally don't have children, but I know, uh, Marty has four kids. And so Marty, you can probably relate to that, uh, example pretty, yeah. f- pretty strongly there as well.
1: Yeah. And just, even just today having a conversation with my daughter, you know, watching, uh, her, her and her, her older brother were fighting about, you know, what swing they were going to get to use on the swing set, you know, and, <laughs> um, you know, and so it, I was watching them out there and they're bickering back and forth. And then the bickering turns to yelling and then this yelling turns to screeching and screaming. And, you know, I'm sure I mean, granted, I live on 10 acres, but I'm sure neighbors for miles around heard this fight. Uh, And, you know, and eventually I said, okay, now is the time I need to step in. And I had to pull them apart. And the last thing that was said before I pulled them apart was my was my oldest son saying, you want to fight to his little sister? <laughs> and uh, if I would have, if I would have allowed that to occur, I'm sure there would have been much harm done, but I'm sure there would have been no good done in that scenario too. So uh, I definitely understand that for sure.
0: Sweet. Awesome. Well, thank you. Um, sorry. We're, we're firing these at you so quickly. No uh, the next one here, uh, nothing but divine choice stops God from preventing genuine evil. And that's kind of related to the one we just talked about. That's right.
2: Really, the third model is the same as the second in kind, but not degree. In other words, um, both of them say God permits evil. It's just that in the third model, there's a lot more talk about how God is uh, self-restrained or self-limited. So God, 99% of the time, doesn't intervene. 99% of the time, doesn't uh, unilaterally determine or single-handedly bring about some effect. But occasionally, when the stakes are really high, God will do that. Maybe God did that at the beginning of the universe or Jesus' resurrection, or God will do it at the end. Uh, God has the kind of power to prevent any occurrence that God wants to do. But God is 99% of the time self-limited and chooses not to intervene. Mm. Of course, the problem with this is that every person who goes through a horrific evil, let's say you're a victim of rape, you have to say to yourself, well, I guess my rape wasn't important enough for God to step in and intervene. So Mm. you've got a God who allows all the crap in the world, and apparently from the divine perspective, allowing it is better than stepping in. Uh, And that is very difficult to reconcile with a God who's
0: perfectly loving. Mm. Sure, absolutely. And two, uh, within this one, um, you use uh, the word genuine to describe evil. And I notice that you do that a lot. Is there a reason that you pair the two together? Are you making a distinction there? Or is that just a a preferred habit of yours? That's a great question. So I
2: use the word genuine because the word evil in and of itself is sometimes used in ways that talk about bad things happening, but they bring about something better in the world, a greater good. Mm. So, you know, let's say uh, we'll go back to the children example uh, and and Marty. Marty (laughs) might say, you know, I'm going to step in at this particular moment because doing so is going to be a greater good. But there might be another argument amongst these kids in which he says, you know what? I'm going to have a hands-off policy here. I'm going to let them work this through. It's going to be a little bit of pain, but they're both going to be better for it. They're going to learn how to argue things out together. So um, a genuine evil, defined properly, would be an event that makes the world, all things considered, worse than it might have been. An apparent evil makes the world better than it might have been. So it's a kind of a greater good. Now, this obviously gets to the question of how do you know what's a genuine evil <laughs> and what's an apparent evil, right? Sure, sure. And um, I think that's the kind of, that's an important question. We all live our lives as if we think some, some things are genuinely evil, even if sometimes mm-hmm. we disagree on those. So, um, you know, it's hard for anybody that I know to look at children torture and say, you know what, oh, that's really a good thing or rape or, you know, genocide, et cetera. Uh, We may disagree on questions like whether abortion is always wrong, but um, every single one of us lives our lives as if some events in the world make it the world worse than it might've been. And if those occur, and at least from our personal perspective, then we have to ask the
0: question, well, why did God stop those? Sure. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you for that distinction. I, I think that's extremely helpful. Um, so then our, our next one here is that God is impersonal and doesn't really care.
1: I actually used that phrase today with my daughter when she said, I don't want to deal with my anger. I said, I don't care that you don't want to deal with your anger. (laughs) Does that mean you don't care about me? She said, no, 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 no. I care about you.
2: (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Well, this this particular model is kind of like the force in Star Wars. It's the idea that God is present everywhere in the world but you don't really have an effect on God, and God doesn't do really anything except sort of make things possible. Mm -hmm. God's like the glue of the universe or something. And so, if you're a theologian and you think, well, you know, the world can't exist unless God is in it, well, you might be attracted to this model, especially if you don't want a God who can be influenced by us in any way. If you're kind of questioning petitionary Mm. prayer, and think it's, you know, a bunch of uh, malarkey that God's not really interested in what we have to say, uh, you might have this view of God. Uh, a famous theologian who some of your listeners might know named Paul Tillich has this mm. model of God. So okay. God is necessary in the world, but isn't a real giving and receiving actor
0: in the world. Okay. Great, awesome, and then uh, one very, I guess, closely tied to that uh, would then also be this idea that God created the universe, but He only observes. Like God is the a, a clockmaker, right. like a, a deistic approach. Yeah, that's the uh, I guess the
2: sixth on my on my uh, list there. Yeah, the God who watches us from a distance. To, to mm-hmm. quote the Batminder line.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and then uh, also you, I guess. So I have I have seven here. Um, I skipped one intentionally. I want to come back to it. But there was one that uh, a lot of people say, too, that's just like God's ways are not our ways. Yeah, in some ways, this last
2: one is not really a model. It's just a big appeal to mystery. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some people do it in a really sophisticated kind of way, like some scholars I know. uh, Jacques Derrida would be a good example here. He wants to say that any language, any ideas any words from the Bible to our common experience, nothing can tell us something true about who God is, because God is a total mystery.
0: Mm, Others okay. are,
2: are not quite so so bold as to say that, but the mystery card gets used by a lot of people in this discussion.
0: Okay. Yeah, and I think, too, that would his thought process, though, it would be different than somebody saying... Uh, this idea that any time we speak of God, since God is an infinite, we can only speak in metaphor, but we can still get at something true. There's a distinction there, right? Those aren't yes. the same positions.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So if you think that your words might tell you something true about God, but not the full truth about God, then you would be in one of the other models.
0: Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And then uh, the last one that I, I want to come back to is that God voluntarily self-limits his power out of love. Yes. Do you say voluntarily or involuntarily? Uh, God voluntarily self-limits okay. his power out of love. I, put, I would put that in model
2: number three. Right. Um, and distinguish that between my model which I call Essential Kenosis. And Mm -hmm. it says that God doesn't voluntarily self-limit, but God's nature is love. And this love is inherently uh, self-giving and others empowering and therefore uncontrolling, which is the title of the book. So the idea is that God always loves everyone and everything and in loving gives freedom to complex creatures like you and me and our dogs and maybe rabbits or whatever <laughs> but gives self-organization to smaller entities and reality and even the what we call the laws of nature are given by God because of God's loving nature but God can't withdraw that, override that or in any way control any person, any creature, even the smallest entities of
0: life. Yeah, that's that's really great. And actually, I saved that one specifically uh, for the end because I knew the distinction that uh, okay. you were going to make there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, I jumped the gun on you. <laughs> no, that no, that's perfect. It you made the it ties in it ties in so perfectly. Uh, Marty, what do you what do you think about that? I'm just interested to hear your thoughts because it might be uh, maybe the first time or maybe not the first time, but it's like a newer concept. Uh, this idea.
1: Well, it. I think the the thing that I was going to ask, Tom, uh, is so the the first way I was introduced to kenosis in any way, shape or form. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Bill Johnson at Bethel Church in um, uh, Bethel. Oh, yes, is I a, am.
2: yes, I am. And yeah. so,
1: yeah. And so Bill was uh, recently taken out. Of, I mean, I think taken out of context, but also uh, really kind of taken gone after by many, you know, what i would call like critiquing bodies of church people for some reason there's people out there these days that they spend their entire all their all the moments of their day looking for pastors to go, <laughs> out, go after and critique and heresy it doesn't hunters make a lot of, yeah it doesn't make a lot of sense to me i like that term josh heresy hunter you should trademark
0: that i think um, it's already been trademarked <laughs> that's uh, not but,
1: mine <laughs> But the but this is a slightly different format of kenosis that Bill yes. talks about. And essentially what he says was Jesus set aside his divinity, choosing instead to live as a man completely dependent on God. And so I would just be curious to hear like the distinction between like what you're talking about in kenosis as a, as opposed to that, because I don't think Bill Johnson actually believes that. He just happened to have said that in one of his books. And so everyone jumped all over him. You know, it was one sentence in a 500 page book and people decided that was all he stood for. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm curious to know the distinction between like sort of your version of what you're talking about. Or maybe there isn't a distinction. Maybe they, they coincide and
2: how that works. Yeah, there's actually two distinctions that need to be made here. So the quote that you just gave from Bill is a quote that has to do with the incarnation And so throughout Christian history, there's been this question of, okay, if Jesus reveals God, if Jesus is in some way divine, then why isn't Jesus, why doesn't Jesus exhibit all the attributes we think God has? You know, God or Jesus sometimes doesn't know what's going on, but God's supposed to be omniscient. Jesus is located in Nazareth, but God's supposed to be omnipresent everywhere, Mm. Jesus mm. can't do some things, and God's supposed to be almighty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So one way to handle this was to say, "Okay, when Jesus becomes, in, or when Christ becomes incarnate in Jesus, he sets aside these attributes, takes the form of a human, and that's kenosis." That's the way most people thought of kenosis up until about the 20th century. In the 20th century, we saw a shift because that particular passage in Philippians doesn't really lend that self itself well to that particular interpretation. And now most scholars think of kenosis as rather than Jesus setting aside attributes instead as Jesus' life telling something telling us something about God's nature. So Mm -hmm. if Jesus lives a life of love we might then infer that God is a loving God because Jesus reveals God. So it's a little bit different thing going on there. Now, of those people who go that direction and say, Jesus tells us something about who God is, most of them are in the voluntary self-limitation camp. In other words, they say, well, what Jesus tells us is that God decides not to control us, at least most of the time, when God could because that's an act of love to give us free will or whatever. I'm taking it a step further, and I say, no, it's not a voluntary decision on God's part. God's very nature is this self giving and others mm. empowering. And God can't deny God's own nature, so it isn't a voluntary choice to self limit. Rather, it's essential gift, essential kenosis. And that's how I think about it.
1: Mm. Yeah, so really, I, I I actually really like that and I like I like those distinctions because I I think it's you know you, you take one simple sentence and you say you know Jesus set aside his divinity and you say whoa 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 wait a minute you know and, and like there's no definition to that it just is a declaration of yeah. something and of so of course that's easy to jump down and you know kind of say hey that's that's like the worst possible way you- <laughs> I don't ever want to think of Jesus as like you know incapable of doing something, you know, but even when Jesus was on the cross, you know, the soldiers mocked him and said, you know, maybe he's just not pot- capable of taking himself down, which is se- se- semi-different, but at the same time was kind of going after that same point, uh, that, you know, got you know, the, this like the human side of Christ. So I like that distinction. Great.
0: Yeah, I think the distinction is really helpful, too, because I think what it it gets at, um, and this kind of flows into another question I had for you, is that it gets at that this is a question about the essence of God, about like who God is at God's core, what God is at God's core. Um, So it's not necessarily speaking about an attribute of God. But more so, love is the essence of who God is, of what God is. And so that's uh, the ground point, I guess, for you. And then everything you're doing kind of flows from that. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. There's a, a, a little-known, ongoing historical discussion in Christianity amongst scholars that actually bears out in the life of the common Christian, And that is the question of what comes logically first in God. Is it love or is it God's sovereign choice? Now, um, people like John Calvin would say it's God's sovereign choice that comes first. And those who follow the logic of that will say, well, God chooses to love. And God might not love everybody all the time. In fact they'll go so far as to say, at least some of them, not the majority, but some of them will say, God's sovereign choice comes first, so God could even choose to stop existing. Mm, Wow. (laughs) Now, the other side says that love comes first in God. They're called the essentialists. Or if they don't say love, they'll say at least something else other than sovereign choice comes first. I say love comes first. Mm. So that means God must love because god doesn't have sovereign choice not to love god loves by necessity or by nature we might say that means god loves everyone and everything because that's simply who god is i extend that and say if this love is self-giving and others empowering it gives freedom to complex creatures and other things to less complex creatures then god must do that because first and foremost God is love mm. now for those of your listeners who think okay how does this line up with the Bible uh, let me refer them to 2 Timothy 2.13 and a really interesting passage that says this uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and Paul says when we are faithless God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself <laughs> There's some things God can't do, and one of them is God simply can't not be God. God must be God, and I think love comes first in God, so God must love. Um, so this is a way of saying there are certain limitations, you might say, on who God, on, on what God can do, and those limitations come from who
0: God is. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's. Re- oh, are you we about to say something, Marty? Oh, I must, I'm getting feedback in my own mic then. My bad. Um, yeah, I just, I think that's so beautiful. Um, and I think that, you know, taking taking that idea, because I think that was for me when I, I first read your book, I guess it was like about three years ago now. Um, and, and you point that out that, you know, that verse, um, and then this idea that God, you know, can't deny himself. Um, I was kind of I was messing with Marty earlier before this call saying that there are you know we live as if there are things God can't do. Somebody yeah. might not be you know readily uh, willing to admit that. Um, but for me, once once you kind of made that connection, um, and everything kind of clicked in, I guess, in my mind and, and I could understand uh, the argument and how things flow from that. So I think that's such, that's a really important thing. And I think, uh, for our listeners and just, uh, for people in general, that's an, that's an interesting thing to kind of, uh, to meditate upon or to, to think about. Um, I think it's, it's definitely worth, uh, spending time with. Um, yeah.
2: And, and, and if, in case some of the listeners think this is like some far out, you know, liberal heresy that just came <laughs> down the pike, Let me uh, mention that there are quite a few passages in the Bible that say God can't do some things. Mm. The writer of Hebrews says God can't lie. The psalmist says God can't grow tired. James says God can't be tempted. And the majority, let me repeat the majority of Christian theologians in history have said that there are things that God can't do. God can't change the past. For instance, says Thomas Aquinas, um, what I'm doing here is taking that general principle of saying there's things God can't do because God, of God's nature and then making the claim love comes first in God's nature and this love is self-giving and others empowering. So God must do that. And if God must do that, that means God simply can't control others.
1: Mm. So to play the devil's advocate along that line of thinking, just, to, just for our sake, you know, yeah, but also good. just... Uh, um, would you say that there's a distinction between things that God can't do and like, you know, so for instance, changing the past and then someone were to say, well, God could change the past. <laughs> he would just never choose to do so. And so and, and kind of try to go at it from that angle that, you know, God certainly can. You know, there's sort of the old uh, the old fateful, in my opinion, argument, you know, can God make a rock so big that not even he can move it? <laughs> and, you know. That question is never built around the idea of understanding God more. The question is built around calling Christians out and trying to tear them down because most of them have <laughs> thought through something like right, of yeah. that magnitude. So what's what's that distinction between God can't
2: and God wouldn't? That is chapter one of my new book, <laughs> The God <laughs> Can't Thing. Um, okay.
0: and We're going to have to read that, we, Marty.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when we ask the question of, you know, is God, if we say, well, God could do that, but God just chooses not to, it seems rather harmless when we ask this strange question of whether or not God could make a rock so big that even God couldn't lift it. But if we mm-hmm. transfer that over to your cousin who's been raped and you say to your cousin, you know, God could have stopped that but chose not to, then all of a sudden it becomes real. Then all of a sudden it becomes, okay, can I trust this God then? Um, Mm -hmm. That's when things get, uh, I think, intense. So I'm willing to say, no, God can't make a rock so big that even God can't lift it because that's a logical impossibility. And I'm not weird in saying that. Most (laughs) Christian theologians would say that. I'm just extending that to the uh, issues of love.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, um, uh, oh, goodness, it just escaped my mind. I was about to uh, throw another question at you. Oh, got it. So I, in having these kind of discussions uh, with other you know, friends of mine, uh, different people who study theology with different perspectives, uh, one thing that has come up um, from a particular uh, camp, a particular group of individuals, is this idea that, oh, if, if God isn't completely sovereign, if God doesn't have complete power and control over everything, then he's not a God worth worshiping. Um, that question, uh, you know, that comes up a lot. Has Have you ever had that question or has someone phrased that to you? And Or maybe how would you respond to something like that? Yeah,
2: definitely I get that sort of question. Uh, I like to respond with, so are you saying that what you ultimately worship is power?
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> um, because what I ultimately worship is a God of love who is powerful. Mm. I, I'm not saying this God's a wimp. But what first and foremost attracts me, draws my admiration, makes me want to lift my hands and say, praise you, God, is not some unlimited power, it's unlimited love. Mm. And if, if unlimited love and unlimited power are not logically compatible, I'm willing to sacrifice the power to uphold the love. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not saying God has no power I just think we should rethink God's power in the light of unlimited love rather than the other way around.
0: Awesome. Fantastic. Um, it seems to I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong, uh, but it seems to that it, do a lot of your, uh, you know, understandings or the way you, you kind of process things come through like this. Uh, Christocentric or Christotelic reading and understanding of scripture that uh, your understanding of, of Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. You know, if you want to know yes. it, what God is like, look to the person of Jesus and then read everything back through that.
2: Yeah, I usually say look it through the, uh, the prism of Jesus's love because, you know, I think Jesus is a, a localized individual, not omnipresent. So there's some things that I believe about God that jesus doesn't demonstrate as a human Mm. being Mm
0: -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i do
2: think jesus loves perfectly and i think that's a revelation of god's perfect love
0: fantastic Mm. awesome well i have uh one more question for you um and it just it's kind of a question that uh, you do address it in your book uh, but also it's one that i feel like um when these kind of conversations come up people uh point to this So, then, what is your understanding of miracles then? Do miracles happen? Uh, If so, how does God act if he's not, you know, coercive? Those kind of things. I do believe in miracles. And I'm going to start,
2: I'm going to sound like a broken record or a self promoter and say, (laughs) I deal with that in chapter three of this new book, God Can't. (laughs) Wonderful. We're going to put God
0: Can't in the show notes.
2: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Yes, I do believe in miracles, but. And this is the important point. I don't think miracles occur because God single-handedly makes them occur. I think miracles occur when creation at whatever level of complexity cooperates or the conditions in creation, if they're inanimate conditions, are conducive for the miracles. So I can affirm the miracles in Scripture. In fact, I think there are strong evidence for my theory. uh, But I don't think that any passage in Scripture says that God single-handedly brought about some miracle, and there is no creaturely contribution whatsoever. In fact, when Jesus goes to his hometown, it says they don't have faith, and he can't do miracles. <laughs> so there's uh, lots of evidence for this idea that miracles should not be seen as some sort of supernatural, single-handed intervention when God alone works to do something. But that God really does act but the conditions are right or there's cooperation at the cellular level or the group level or environmental level for these kinds of miracles to occur. And if we think this way we can overcome two big problems. One problem is what I call the problem of selective miracles. I don't know about you guys but I prayed for lots of people who <laughs> weren't healed. Sure. And mm-hmm. if... If God can't heal single-handedly, I don't have to think that God is punishing them or has abandoned them or they just didn't pray hard enough. Uh, I can say, no, the conditions in creation weren't conducive. There wasn't the kind of cooperation that God needed. And the second thing that it overcomes is blaming the victims. Mm. We don't have to stand up to someone who's been praying to be healed from cancer and saying, you know what? You just didn't have enough faith. You didn't cooperate. We can say the cellular tissues or the cells are not conducive or there wasn't cooperation necessarily. So we don't have to play blame the victim. And then when people are healed, we can rejoice, praise God, but also be happy that there was cooperation at the creaturely level.
0: Mm. So it seems like maybe the distinction then is rather than God, uh, being coercive within the, the realm of miracles that maybe God works through influence and that influence gives, uh, you know, whatever people sells, uh, you know, whatever it may be the opportunity to choose to kind of partner with God in that, um, miracle. Does that, does that make sense? Is that a good way to think about that? That's a great way to put it.
2: And, uh, You know, when I talk about uh, miracles and healing in particular in this new book, at the end I look at 15 myths and 15 truths about healing, and what you just described uh, captures a couple of them there.
0: Oh, awesome, cool. Well, now I really have to read this book. (laughs) I'm quite (laughs) excited, yeah. Did did
1: Josh help write this book, Tom? Did (laughs) you guys talk beforehand?
0: Uh, I love it. Don't tell anybody. It's a secret. (laughs) Cut me off. no way that's no that's awesome that's um that's really great Marty do you have any uh you know anything uh, anything that comes to mind for you just overall maybe any questions you would like to ask, or 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 yeah. you know, anything? I just
1: have I have two questions, and I and they're and they're they're both going to sound like they're totally out of left field, and That's they both okay. have nothing to do with each other. No problem. Um, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> earlier you were talking about uh, the two different types of evil, and you were kind of distinguishing between those two. Um, where Josh currently lives, although won't be living. Uh, for you know the next week and a half two weeks and Woo! where I lived for uh, two and a half years um, there right around June 1st through November 30th there <laughs> happens to be uh, like the most powerful thing on earth uh, that uh, threatens the state of Florida very often and that's hurricanes uh, but not only hurricanes just weather in general uh, seems to kind of be one of those things that like, People often wonder, like, so when you think about Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Andrew and these huge, devastating uh, what they what insurance companies deem acts of God, um, that these things, uh, obviously, they're completely unpreventable on the human side. Um, but just from the perspective of sort of this idea of evil, and maybe it's not even the perspective of evil. How do these things fall into that? Cause it's not just hurricanes and tornadoes, but it's everything, you know, all these different types of acts of God That's where people right. say we've lost everything. And like, you know, why would a loving God choose to allow this to happen to us? And I've actually known people who have walked away from faith altogether because of an act of God, you know, happening to them.
2: Yes. So first of all, I don't call them acts of God, which I know you don't either, but I I want to make sure that's clear. Secondly, these are usually called in the conversation natural evils because we don't attribute them to free will. At least most people don't. Um, And so in my scheme, since God loves everyone and everything from the most complex to the very least complex... God also doesn't have the power to single-handedly prevent natural evils. So God's not to blame for them. So that's a great question, and I handle it by saying, we don't just think about God not being able to control free will creatures. We should also think about the fundamental levels of existence, from water molecules to whatever wind is made up, oxygen, etc. God is present there and not controlling Mm.
1: Oh. I think and, you know, because there's there's a lot of things in other senses of evil that occur too. Uh, you know, I remember it was maybe 2013 or 2014. Uh, there was a nightclub in Orlando, Florida, that was a happened to be a gay nightclub that was shot up, and there were people that were saying that God allowed that to happen because the people that were a part of this club uh, were sinful and they needed to be atoned of their sins, and they simply had not listened to God in that. And so, rather than Rather than God allowing them to live, they would use things like examples of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament and say, well, this is God did this here. So that's exactly what he's doing here. And and I think there becomes real theological problems with that, even just from like a pastor's perspective, Mm -hmm. you know, on Mm -hmm. a Sunday morning, someone coming and asking me, you know, well, why would God allow this to happen? And, you know, like what they're looking for really is, are you going to condemn being gay And are you also going to condemn this act? And are you, but then how are you going to redeem the idea? Did God allow this to happen or did Satan do this and all these things? And it's a big, huge issue. And And I think that's a really difficult thing to manage.
2: Yep. I agree with you. I think the theology that says God allowed what happened in that nightclub is just as bad as the theology that says God allowed Satan to torment Job.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think, too, uh, just a funny thing that I've heard someone kind of make a joke uh, about like how God's judgment seems to always occur during hurricane season. (laughs) That it just happens to be a coincidence. Yeah, Uh, that's right. Yeah, Yeah. that's right.
1: Well, and also there are those people that, you know, their house is destroyed by a hurricane and they rebuild that same house in that exact same location. And 10 years later, their house is destroyed again. And they say, why would God allow this to happen? And God (laughs) says, no, (laughs) that's not how this works at all. Yeah. Um, so my my second question, uh, as as I mentioned, they're totally unrelated to each other. Um, although in your definition or explanation or your thought, they may have uh, relation. Uh, as a worship pastor, I've run across. Um, you know different opportunities and things like that with different songs and different song lyrics that people have problems with. And one of the most recent ones uh, is the is the more recent song "Reckless Love." Hooray! I'm glad uh, you brought and, that up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know the lyrics say the oh oh the overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God.
2: Yes, and, I have um, a suggestion for you. Yes, I suggest you take out the word overwhelming and put in uncontrolling same syllables (laughs) it makes a lot more sense theologically and then you don't have to think that God somehow overwhelms you and controls you you could say the uncontrolling yeah (laughs) and if reckless simply means that God loves everyone and everything that's fine with me Uh, uh, if reckless means God doesn't calculate I'm going to love her and not him um, then I'm great with reckless if reckless means uh, that God plays favorites, then I've got a problem with it. Mm.
1: Well, and I think a lot of the issue with the lyric reckless has been that um God is not a God of order, is that, that what seems to mm. that seems to insinuate that God doesn't do things in an orderly fashion. And, you know, I, I did spend some time, I was I worked in a reformed church for two and a half years. Uh, and that was something that was very, very, very strongly hit home as <laughs> often as possible, yeah. was that God is only a God of order. And so God would never yeah. do anything outside the realm of something orderly. So the term reckless and just, as, you know, one definition of that word reckless would mean that God loves in this just, you know, as if he's like and to use the, the this uh, this metaphor, a tornado that just kind of spins around and sucks up anything in its path. <laughs> but there's no rhyme or reason to it, which they, of course, completely throw away. Um, yeah. But I was just kind of curious on your thought on that. But that, that's that's good to hear. Uh, I,
2: like <laughs> that. I think I think God's love is extravagant and it, God loves everyone all the time. And I worry when people emphasize order because that seems to suggest the status quo is what God wants. Mm. And I look around the world and see lots of crap, Yeah, (laughs) lots of crap. And I think if this is what God wants, then God just can't be loving. It just makes no sense to me. Mm -hmm. I think there has to be some disorder. I'm not against all order, but I think there has to be some disorder in the name of love for the well-being of the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. And that's wonderful, wonderfully said, Tom. Thank you uh, for yeah. that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for this conversation.
0: Yeah, thank yeah. you. We uh Just real quick, uh, before you go here, people can find you. You do have a website. Um, yep. It is. Is it just thomasjord.com? I've that's been correct. there like a yep. billion times. Okay, cool. So thomasjord.com yeah. is the interview. Uh, the book that we discussed today is The Uncontrolling Love of God, Uh, We'll be sure to link that in the show notes uh, to an Amazon link. Uh, Also, uh, the book that came up uh, a good uh, bit of times is your your latest book, which is God Can't. And I believe there is like the preface or something like that available for that on your website as a PDF for the intro.
2: That's right. Yeah. And the subtitle of that book is How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse and Other Evils.
0: Mm. Wow, that that's and it seems too just such like a, a timely book, uh, especially yeah. for the the day and age that we're in. So uh, thank you for the time, the energy, the effort, the prayer, the study yeah. that you put into that. I really think it's uh, going to help a lot of people. Um, so thank you. And then and Josh, I just want to throw out
1: really quick that uh, Tom's Tom's last name is spelled with two O's. Thank oh you. yeah. So I have on if my you're notes. Looking for O R D, as in like the Chicago Airport, because the Chicago Airport is O R D. But Tom's name is O O R D, so it's Thomas J, and that's J A Y, and then O O R D dot so you don't get confused. Yeah, absolutely, thanks, Marty.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well done, Marty. All right. Well, is there anything that we missed, uh, Tom, that you would like to, to plug or let people know about? I don't think so. Thanks so much for this conversation. Yeah, thank you again for uh, hanging out with two random guys who you've never once heard of in your life. We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Great. Thanks, Tom. All right, well. All right, see you guys. See ya. Well, uh, as always, you can uh, find us on Theology Doesn't Suck. Oh, my goodness gracious, Marty. I should quit while I'm ahead. TheologyDoesntSuck.com. Uh, You can follow us on Instagram. In fact, you should follow us there. We do have a Twitter. We've been doing the tweeting thing. Uh, We're new at it, so give us some grace there. And then, uh, oh, goodness, I don't think I'm missing anything. Um, Yeah, so peace out. Thanks for listening, and uh, go Caps. Go Blackhawks.